Hey, good morning, everyone. My name is Joe, and I'm still an alcoholic and a drug addict. Um, this next speaker, I had the pleasure of, of reading his book, uh, which is entitled Alcoholism, A Conspiracy of Silence. Uh, and I realized that, at least for me, in my short ten years, that uh, when I first came in, it certainly was a conspiracy of silence. I, I wanted no one to know about me. And uh, from reading his book, I realized that there's an interesting viewpoint here. And uh, without further ado, I'm going to introduce you to Leo. Thank you, Joe. It's a, a pleasure to be here. And uh, I hope that uh, we all enjoy the whole, all of the festivities. I want to begin by saying sending my thanks to Bill Dan, a very dear friend of all of us who had some problem lately, illness, and that's why he's not here. I want to thank him for all he's done for me and his faith in me. This reminds me of a time I was due to give a talk early in the morning, and I was very nervous about it, and I told a friend of mine, and I wanted to hope that I could get a good night's sleep the night before, and he said, well, Leo, the only advice I can give you is don't have Paul H. as a roommate. If you do, you won't get any sleep. He snores so loudly, you'd hear him a mile away. Well, the next day I spoke, and I gave a pretty good talk, and my friend said, well, I guess you didn't have Paul as a roommate. And I said, well, actually, I did. Well, here, my God, how did you manage to sleep in the same room with him? Well, I said, what I did before I went to bed, I went over and I gave him a big kiss. And you know, he stayed awake all night. <laughs> the point is, when you have a problem, don't give up on it too easily. The solution may not be what you want but it's a solution. Fifty years ago today, I was still on the island of Luzon fighting the Japanese. Uh, a few days later, the bombs dropped, the war ended, and of course, I was discharged. Uh, because of the horrors of World War II, and recently we started a Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C., mainly because of the victims of Nazi Germany, concentration camps. However, I found over recent years when I mentioned that there are 20 million alcoholics in the process of dying, and we have had an excellent treatment for 60 years, nobody seems to get terribly excited over this. They do what we have done since the dawn of history, point the finger at the patient, the victim, the alcoholic, and say it's his fault. It's because of that that I'm going to be talking today and show what we can do about that. It is my conviction, and I hope to prove to you, that we, you and I, can change alcoholism, a disease which has plagued mankind since the dawn of history, to a minor illness by the turn of the century. But, as they say in the fifth chapter, it will happen only if we are willing to go to any length to achieve this. I was born in 1921, the 8th of 10, uh, in a small coal mining town near Scranton, Pennsylvania. I graduated from the university in Scranton in 43 joined the Army and spent three years in the Southwest Pacific, mainly on New Guinea and Luzon. The war ended, and I was discharged January 46. I was 24 years old, and I decided it was time to start drinking. Now, the only reason I decided to drink was I thought it was something that all adults eventually did. And judging by the movies, it looked like that was what the uh, mature, sophisticated people were doing. Like most alcoholics, I was an uh, alcoholic right from the beginning, though my disease progressed slowly for about four to six years while I was in medical school in my internship. Uh, like many alcoholics, I remember that first drink very clearly. I have a picture of it here in my book. And uh, I wrote an article in 1980, really, to show how to diagnose alcoholism with one question. And the basis of it was, ask every patient, tell me all you remember about your first drink, and watch the way they talk about it. We alcoholics, as you know, talk differently about drinking than non-alcoholics. Uh, after my finishing Georgetown Medical School in 50 and my internship at St. Elizabeth Hospital, I went to the Norwich State Hospital, Connecticut, 1952, where New Year's Eve I had my first blackout. From then on, my disease progressed rather rapidly. I then went to the Ypsilanti State Hospital in Michigan, where by the end of the first year I was drinking heavily every night. I was now deep into my addiction. I also spent a night in jail for driving under the influence. I then went to the Territorial Hospital of Hawaii where I was staff psychiatrist for one year, and there the bottom fell out. I really hit bottom. 
I came back to Washington in 56, began working with the Veterans Administration. I also began seeing a series of physicians, internists, and psychoanalysts. I was to waste 17 years in psychoanalysis. After six years, I quit my first analyst for the simple reason I was getting worse. And the first, the last day I saw him, I said, do you think I'm an alcoholic? And he said, I always thought you were, but he never informed me of this fact. I also had trouble with him in that I asked him to write a prescription for me because of my severe insomnia. And he said, well, why don't you write your own? You're a doctor. Well, I follow my doctor's advice, and I can truthfully say I never took any drugs that were not prescribed by a physician. Um, uh, my internist had me diagnosed wrongly as having collagen disease. He had me ready for a kidney biopsy, and uh, the, uh, the head of the nephrology department came by and squelched that. I won't bore you with a drunkalog, but I'll merely tell you that I do remember hearing Russian airplanes flying down 16th Street in Washington. I remember calling the operator and asking for the phone number of the Smithsonian Institution just to hear a human voice. I remember seeing cockroaches around and welcoming their presence. I was so lonely. And that is to be rather lonely. I remember many times praying for a death. My emotions varied from fear to terror. In 1963, something happened which saved my life. A friend of mine uh, told me he heard rumors I was going to be fired. That day, in desperation, I called Alcoholics Anonymous. Now, does that mean when I called Alcoholics Anonymous I thought I was an alcoholic? No. Does it mean I wanted to stop drinking? No. It meant that I was grasping at straws. My thinking was if I could get off alcohol for six months, I, my boss would get off my back and I could return to normal drinking, overlooking the fact that I never drank normally in my life and overlooking the second fact that even if I could drink normally, I've never known of an alcoholic who would settle for drinking normally. After six uh, months of sobriety, I had a relapse and some friends got me to a place uh, up in Patterson, New Jersey called Mount Carmel. Uh, it was located in the warehouse district and it was located at the corner of Straight and Narrow. I have a picture of that place in my book. By the way, I'd like to hand my book to somebody and pass it around. Could you, one of you? Uh, all right. Here's one over the other side. Um, at the end of the week, I was uh, paid one dollar. Not one dollar an hour, one dollar a day, but one dollar for the week. Um, I had my last drink April 11, 1967, and I didn't trust myself, so I stayed on antabuse for six years. It was only then I found that I was a drug addict. I had been writing prescriptions for sedatives and tranquilizers, and I didn't realize how badly I was hooked. I then went to the Melwood Farm in Alney, Maryland in 1968, and a year later I got a promotion I was denied for four years. Then I did the most stupid thing I ever did in my life. I deliberately took drugs so I could get a medical retirement. I was so angry at the VA. Then from 69 to 72, I was experiencing what can be one of the most dangerous symptoms for an alcoholic, good health. Everything was going fine, and so fine that I forgot where I could come from. I had forgotten that I had two chronic illnesses. I had a little romantic problem, not that bad as I look at it now, but my insomnia came back. I wrote a prescription, and a month later I was in the Washington Hospital Center for a month. Then I went down to Statesboro, Georgia, to a Willingway Hospital. I arrived there December 15, 1972, and I took a few Equinil before I went into the hospital, and that was my last experience with a drug. It was a very interesting experience, and as I say, it was my last experience with a drug. I remember being down in Georgia in the day room. I didn't expect them to be playing Beethoven and Mozart, and there was a lot of country music being played. But there was one song they kept playing over and over, and I thought it was rather inappropriate. And I went to Dr. John, and he did something about it. The song was Born to Lose. Uh, they also asked, the football games are going on during that time. It was uh, Christmas and uh, they, the North was playing the South, and they asked me who I wanted to win. Well, being in Pennsylvania, I, I said, well, I want the South to win, of course. I want to get out of here alive. Um, I left there in the end of January of 73. For years, I was very pleased and thankful that I had recovered, that I had finally had my last experience with alcohol and drugs. 
But then as time went on, I became very angry, angry at the way my illness had been treated, or perhaps I should say mistreated. And then one day I said to myself, instead of being angry, why don't I do something about it? It was then I decided to do something, and I, I swore that I would find an answer to this problem of alcoholism. What is the problem? Well, the problem is we've had a treatment for 60 years and only 5% of the, again, the treatment. The, there were three main reasons why I decided to investigate this. Number one, five doctors who were treating me knew I had a fatal illness and not one of them informed me. Number two, during 13 years at five hospitals, uh, there were several hundred doctors, psychologists, social workers, nurses who knew me and liked me, but not one of them knew how to help me. And the third reason I already gave, we have had an excellent treatment, AA, since 1935, and only 5% of the victims were getting the treatment. I knew there was something wrong with our delivery system. To bring things into perspective, let me ask you what your feelings would be if you were to find out that for 60 years we have had an excellent treatment for cancer of the breast and cancer of the prostate, but only 5% of the victims were getting the treatment. Would you be inclined to say, well, they're not ready, they haven't admitted, they haven't hit bottom? I don't think so. I asked myself uh, what to try to get a baseline. Uh, what do we want to know about any illness? Well, we're being clear for any illness. We'd like to know the cause or etiology. We'd hope for a simple way to diagnose the illness, particularly in its early stages. And number three, we would hope for a simple, effective, inexpensive treatment. Where does alcoholism fit in this? Well, number one, we not only don't have to know the cause of alcoholism to treat it. In fact, trying to find a cause, like I did for 17 years in analysis, is a total waste of time and an exercise in futility. Number two, contrary to popular opinion, alcoholism is very simple to diagnose. It's really nothing more than abnormal drinking. The problem is most people do not want to diagnose it. And number three, we obviously have an excellent treatment. Now, according by all that is right and holy, alcoholism should be a minor problem, but it isn't. It's our number one health problem. Why? I knew there was something missing in the equation, and I kept thinking about it and going over a lot of things. And one day, New Year's Day, I think it was 1988, my girlfriend and I were driving around the Gettysburg battlefield, and it all sort of came together. And this is what I want to share with you. This is the most important concept of the whole thing, and it is this. Um, alcoholic, alcoholism is our number one health problem because it's a disease of prejudice. And where prejudice comes in, reasoning goes out. This is so important, I want to repeat it. Alcoholism is our number one health problem because it's a disease of prejudice. And where prejudice comes in, reasoning goes out. This has led to alcoholism being seen not as an illness, but a moral issue. And the alcoholic, not as a sick person, but as a bad person. We give lip service to saying it's an illness and to, to the belief that the alcoholic is a sick person. But actually, operationally speaking, we don't act that way. What is the proof of this? Now, uh, oh, by the way, let me mention that Benjamin Rush, father of American psychiatry, surgeon general under George Washington, signer of the Declaration of Independence, said alcoholism was a disease. Edgar Allan Poe, in his story, The Black Cat, said, My disease was upon me, for what disease is like alcohol? The AMA declared alcoholism, the only illness which had to be declared an illness in 1956. And uh, even in AA, we never hear anyone say, I think Mary is an alcoholic, I think John is an alcoholic. No. I think Mary has a problem. I think John has a problem. A problem? Hell, they've got a fatal disease called alcoholism. Now, what is the proof? That's a pretty strong statement that alcoholism is a disease of prejudice. Number one, alcoholism is the only disease in which the patient is expected to diagnose his own illness and admit having it. Now, I don't know what comes to your mind when you hear the word admit or see it written, but what comes to my mind is murder, rape, treason, espionage, bank robbery, child molesting, wife beating. But yet, everyone uses the word admit when we're talking about alcoholism. Isn't that strange? And it doesn't sort of shock us. Number two, upon recovery, the alcoholic is often referred to as reformed, a term appropriate for criminals. 
Some years ago, I was in my office and the wife of a radiologist called me. I had met her at a party the previous year and she told me about her husband's drinking. And she said, are you Dr. Hennigan, the reformed alcoholic? And I said, no, I'm the same son of a bitch I've always been, but I don't drink. And she said, oh, I didn't mean, I said, yes, you did. <laughs> a study, um, a con- I conducted a study of how alcoholism is taught in medical schools in the United States and Canada for the writing of my book. And there are several medical schools that said we don't have a course on alcoholism. And 95% of the medical schools dealt with alcoholism in a very superficial way. In AA, as you know, we doctors call alcoholism the 421 disease during four years of medical school. We spend two hours learning about our number one health problem. I have stated, and I will still say, I believe the average doctor knows as much about alcoholism as I know about climbing Mount Everest, and I don't like heights. My, another study, one-fourth to one-third of all hospitalized patients are suffering from alcoholism. However, when they're in the hospital being treated for whatever brought them there, the alcoholism is totally ignored. In June, June the 1st of this year, 1995, I was in a hospital having prostate surgery, and I was talking with the nurse there whose husband was an alcoholic, and she told me there was an, a, patient, a surgical patient there who was an alcoholic. And I said, what are you going to do about his alcoholism? She said, nothing. I said, no one is going to discuss Alcoholics Anonymous with him? She said, no. No one is going to discuss Al-Anon with his wife? No. This, by the way, is standard. What are we going to do about it? Uh, it's still acceptable for doctors to know a patient has a fatal illness and not tell the patient if that fatal illness is alcoholism. Three years ago, my girlfriend went to a physician, and the physician asked her how much she drank, and she said, I'd like to have a glass of wine with my meals. But I'm so glad you asked, because my brother is an alcoholic. And the doctor said, when I have a patient who is an alcoholic, I don't tell him, because if I do, he won't come back. Two months later, we were at a party uh, held by the Shanbackers. He was an administrator of the Montgomery County Medical Society. Another doctor said the same thing. The most important concept in all of medicine is early diagnosis, and yet it is almost never used in dealing with alcoholism. We keep saying that alcoholism is powerful, baffling, and cunning. Well, of course it is if you don't start treating it for 15 or 20 years. My disease didn't get treated until I've been progressing for 17 years. Um, It's the only illness in which we try hard to prove the person doesn't have the illness, whereas in other illnesses we try to prove they do. Not that we want them to have it, but this is the way we are. But we, to give you an example, my brother who was a physician, well, he was a physician in 1941, to give you an idea of his age. And uh, he saw my oldest brother die of alcoholism. He saw what I went through. And when I called him 15 years ago to tell him about my concern about our youngest brother, his response was, well, he's working every day. Isn't that a brilliant response? Can you imagine somebody say, well, I think Mrs. So-and-so has cancer of the breast. Well, she's working every day. Interesting. Talk about denial. And here's one that many of the people in AA do not like to hear. Alcoholism is the only illness in which, upon recovery, the patient is expected to remain anonymous about the treatment which saved his life. Uh, Now, how have we treated the alcoholic like a bad person and not a sick person? We have created a no-win situation for the alcoholic. We have adopted a policy which is doomed to failure. And if you have any doubt, all you have to do is realize we've been doing this for 60 years and 5% of alcoholics walk through that door. We wait for the alcoholic to call us. Knowing damn well, we should know from our own experience, alcoholics do not call AA on their own. Bill Daniels was telling me he knew of only one doctor who ever called got to AA on his own. We don't. And then we go around saying, oh, A is a program of attraction. It is. I don't find anybody attracted to AA until there's a gun at their head or until they see role models. Now, I decide, I compare uh, alcoholic, the, the attitude toward the alcoholic like uh, what was called a trial by ordeal during the days of witchcraft. If you were accused of witchcraft, here's how you were tried. You were tied hand and feet and thrown in a pond. 
If the pond rejected you, that is, if you floated, you were judged to be guilty and you were executed. If the pond accepted you, you were judged to be innocent. But guess what? You were also drowned. In other words, uh, it was a no-win situation. When we take the position of waiting for the alcoholic to call us, he's not going to. And then we compound it further, but I'll get to there a little later, when we started this nonsense Oh, we never recover. La-di-da. Isn't that lovely? I haven't had a drink in 28 years. How recovered can you be? I decided to go back to the source and find out what happened back in the 30s. It all began not when Bill met Bob. It began when Bill's friend, Ebby, a drinking buddy and fellow alcoholic, came to him on November of 1934. But there was a difference this time. This time, Ebby had stopped drinking. Bill saw in Ebby, for the first time, a recovered alcoholic. There are three criterias that are there which must be seen before an alcoholic will even consider not drinking. He must see someone who has stopped drinking, a person who has gotten some semblance of order to their life, and number three, who has some level of serenity, peace of mind, contentment, joy, happiness, call it what you want. That is what Bill Wilson saw in Ebby. Bill had been trying for years to recover, but this was the first time he saw a recovered alcoholic. He decided maybe it will work for me, and it did. And seven months later, he called on Dr. Bob Smith. Dr. Bob Smith, as you know, was far from uh, 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 eager to meet Bill. He finally consented to a 15-minute meeting. The meeting lasted for hours. When Dr. Bob saw a recovered alcoholic... One who had stopped drinking, got his life in order, and had some level of serenity, he considered, maybe I can do it. Now, in case you're saying, well, Bill Wilson was ready and Bob was ready, I don't buy that. When we have whatever happens to get us into AA, we're neither ready nor unready. We become ready when the right thing is done. In my case, it was a gun at the head. In the case of Bill and Bob... They became ready when they saw proof that an alcoholic could stop drinking, get their life in order, and be happy. Uh, George Bernard Shaw said, uh, example isn't the best way of teaching. It's the only way. He also said something else that is very interesting that it could apply to alcoholism. Hate isn't the worst crime against our fellow man. It's indifference. And that is what I have seen growing by leaps and bounds over the years. So, the point is, and I, you've got to remember this, that the alcoholic, before he will even consider... Now, when I came to AA, I didn't automatically uh, grab the first step and say, oh, this is for me. When I came to my first AA meeting, I saw something I did not know existed. I did not know existed. I saw dozens of smiling, laughing happy people. And I found to my utter amazement, these were alcoholics who would stop drinking. Now, I never knew this was possible. And we don't when we're drinking. When we are drinking, we know we can stop drinking. We've all done it for a day, a week, a month. I did it during Lynch. But it was a living hell. We all know this. And when I was seeing doctors, no doctor ever told me what would happen, what could happen if I stopped drinking. They all told me what would happen if I kept drinking. So when we're out there drinking, we do not know that recovery is possible. Now, about AA. We have managed to do a pretty good job of screwing up what was a damn good program. Number one, if you open the big book, the first thing you will see is these are the stories of how thousands of men and women have recovered from alcoholism. Have recovered. And the word recovered is used correctly 38 times in the big book. There is no such a thing, as far as I know, in all of medicine as an illness from which you are recovering indefinitely. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. The word recovering has a very simple meaning. It's an ongoing process which leads to recovery. That's all it means. So we've messed that up. 
And I've had wives come to me and say, I just about had my husband convinced to go to AA when he heard somebody on radio say, oh, alcoholics never recover. What a vicious thing this is do. How can we hold on to that absurdity? I'm told that this nonsense began in California, which is no surprise. And uh, about 30 years ago, somebody confused the word cured with recovered. If he said we're never cured, he would have been telling the truth. But he didn't. He said we're never recovered. And like parrots and people in AA picked it up. And, uh, you know, you, you know how to, it's become a cult now. So that's what we have done with the recovery. Number two, I have seen the idea of the 12-step deteriorating over the years. Recently, I've heard a number of old-timers talk with me. We have a feeling that the people in AA coming in now are not having as high a rate of recovery, and we wonder why. Well, I think one of the reasons is there are more coming in who are dual addicted. But I think, and a lot of them think, we're not seeing the amount of involvement in 12-step work that we used to see. When I was taken to Mount Carmel, when I got to Mount Carmel back in 63, it was something like this. I had just gotten out of a, re, uh, out of a drying up place, and I was coming apart at the scene because in those days they sort of threw you out after three days. Some people down in Washington made arrangements for me to go down to the train station, go up to New York to a place called Port Authority. I still shake when I think of the word New York. I had to go to the Port Authority, wait at a certain pillar for a stranger who picked me up and took me over to Mount Carmel, Patterson, New Jersey. That was real 12-step work. I would not be alive if I didn't have this kind of thing going. I don't hear about that much more. When I try to lead a meeting on the 12-step, I literally get shot down. I'm here for me. I'm not concerned about others. Since I have been speaking about these things, I have been hit with... I didn't know you had become so messianic. I didn't know you would become a missionary. Well, at first it was rather painful, but after a while I learned to laugh at it. And I was at one meeting once, and after I spoke, someone came to me and said, Who do you think you are, God? Well, I said, Well, I wasn't going to bring the subject up, but now that you mention it. <laughs> but I have been putting up... Interesting, and over these years, I have been talking about uh, others who have been resisted with their new ideas. One, Dr. Seymour Weiss. I was in the National Library of Medicine the other day, and it happens to be the best medical library in the world, and I was in the historical medical section. And I happened to see a, a, a bunch of books. There were thousands of books there. And there was a series of books that says Isis. Well, I know Isis was, I think, a, a, a goddess in Egypt. And I just picked one out at random, 1936. And I opened it, I'm looking at it, and it came out to this. It was so strange. Let me read this. It said, Thus, for example, the brilliant essay of Oliver Wendell Holmes, which first appeared in 1943, in which Holmes gave evidence of having recognized the microbiotic origin of the disease and warned physicians against acting as transmitters of the disease themselves, met with nothing but disapproval from the profession. A far more tragic example is the case of one of the greatest benefactors of mankind of all time, Ignaz Philip Semmelweis, 1818-1865, who in 47 successfully proved to himself that puerperal fever was a contagious disease and that it could be eliminated by eliminating the possibility of contagion. Acting upon this theory, in two years he reduced the maternity, maternal mortality rate from 16% to 1.2% in the Viennese clinic presided over by Johann Klein. But the latter's vanity and jealousy finally succeeded in driving Seymour Weiss from the clinic and from Vienna. He entered a, hospital, a mental hospital shortly after that and died. The general antagonism aroused by James Simpson, discovery of the anesthetic use of chloroform, and the antagonism exhibited by Emil Nogarak, discovery and description of latent gonorrhea and its effect in 1876 are other cases in point. Uh, he goes on and says, and the next statement I thoroughly disagree with. He says, we are, I think, a great deal more tolerant today. I haven't found that to be so. I found the rigidity of my ideas is unbelievable. Unbelievable. Okay, now, when anyone about the 12th step, the 12th step program, the backbone of AA, and we've drifted away from that, when any, we are supposed to carry the message to the still-suffering alcoholic. To me, that means if the alcoholic is there and I'm here, it is my responsibility to go to him. 
not to wait for him to call me. Likewise, the fifth tradition. Then we also have these little cards we carry. When anyone reaches out for help, I want the hand of AA to be there, and for that I am responsible. Now, how can anyone reach out to me if they don't know I'm in AA and that I'm a recovered alcoholic? When I had my open heart surgery, the day the war began, January 16, 1991, the day before, three people came in, two, two women and a man, and they identified themselves as having recovered from open heart surgery. What do you think my response would be if they told me they were recovering from open heart surgery? Or what do you think my response would be if they said, oh, by the way, no one ever recovers from open heart surgery. We're always recovering. I would have been out of that door in a flash. Some years ago, I was at a party. A group of doctors from the VA had it, and there was a woman doctor from Estonia. She was married to an Irishman, and she asked me why I wasn't drinking. I said, I can't because I'm a recovered alcoholic. And she asked how I recovered, and I said, in AA. The next morning at 7 o'clock, the phone rang, and she said, this is Dr. So-and-so. Could you come over and see Jim? I didn't ask why. She never even mentioned the night before, but I think I knew why. I went over. They, they live within the Stone Stroke, the Del Rey Club, an AA club. I took him to his first meeting, and he died about five years ago at about 15 years of sobriety. Now, the point I make is she could not have called me unless I had said two things, that I was a recovered alcoholic and that I was active in AA. That gave her the option. And incidentally, I tell everyone I am a recovered alcoholic in AA, and when I do this, 95% of the time I do it, 95%, the person will respond with, oh, my mother's an alcoholic, my father, my husband, my wife, my son, my daughter, my boyfriend, my girlfriend, my boss. Now and then I'll get one who will say, I'm an AA. 95%. So when anyone says, well, I will break my anonymity when necessary, you don't know when it's necessary. The person you're talking to probably has an alcoholic in their family. If you're going to wait, if you think you can be standing at the corner of 16th and K in Washington and someone is going to walk up to you and say, oh, pardon me, sir, I've been drinking a lot lately and I begin to think maybe I'm an alcoholic and I should go to AA. Do you happen to belong to AA? Yeah, that's going to happen when pigs fly. You are role models. We are role models. The only way we're going to attract alcoholics is for them to see us. We are living proof. Each one of us is a role model. There is no situation in which the concept of role model is more powerful than in regard to alcoholism. Now, about anonymity. I think a lot of the people in AA have forgotten, if they ever known, why anonymity began. And it began in 1939, and the reason is given on page 13 of the introduction of the big book. And I quote, We must remain anonymous because we're too few in number at present to handle the demands that may be made upon us as a result of this publication. We're too few at present. We are no longer too few. We are one and a half million or thereabouts. Also, anonymity has moved away from being not just anonymity but secrecy. In the 60s, Bill Wilson spoke out in the, about uh, how shocked he was to find that there were some AA groups where the people did not know each other's last names and all of where each other lived. And also, Lois Wilson spoke out against confusing anonymity with secrecy. I am always surprised at why at meetings like this, people cannot give their last name. It, it surprises me. This is not anonymity, it's secrecy. Why do we need it? It is my conviction, and, I, and now for the answer, if one and a half million alcoholics were to come out of the closet and identify themselves as recovered alcoholics who recovered in AA, it is my conviction we could double the membership of AA in six months and redouble it again the following year. That is my conviction, and I challenge anyone to prove otherwise. Ten or fifteen years ago, people suffering from a certain illness were treated with the utmost contempt. It was called AIDS. But these people didn't roll over and play dead. They had guts. They had courage. They came out, and they marched. They demanded respect, and guess what? They got it. 
They got the backing of people like Arthur Ashe, Magic Johnson, Elizabeth Taylor, and others. What are we doing in AA? It's become more of a secret society all the time. When I got out of the hospital, I think it was 73, I was on an ocean liner, and every day you got a program, and it would list an AA meeting. I understand they no longer do that. You'll have a meeting of the friends of Bill W., Lottie Dowell. Isn't that lovely? We can't even come out and say we're in AA. When anyone, uh, and it happens all the time, I'll be in a store or something, somebody will come up, are you a friend of Bill W.? And I always say, no, I never met the man, but I am an AA. I'm a little tired of this sort of Mickey Mouse nonsense. It's funny how things happen. I was just uh, in a newspaper just the other day. I was saying that we become like little children, like a little club. You know, like little boys have the little clubs, no girls allowed. Well, this had to do with Packwood, but it still serves a purpose. We become like a cult. And, uh, you know, it's nonsense. Another thing that happened the other day, I was watching, listening on the radio, if I could find it. So, yeah. Uh, it was a quotation from Henry Ford. It was on television last night. If everyone is moving forward together, success takes care of itself. What we could do if we would decide that we want to really help our fellow alcoholics. Um, yes, uh, I notice now at meetings, during the half, some, they'll ask, are there any new people here? Someone will get up. And they'll say, oh, could you give us your first name? Why do they have to specify the first name? I, I, I don't want to specify my I'm Leo Hennigan. More specifically, Leo Patrick Hennigan. If I were to uh, drop this pin a hundred times, it would hit the floor not 50 times, not 99 times, but a hundred times. What is my point? If we continue doing things the way we have been doing it, we can expect to get the same results. If we continue doing things the way we've been doing it, we can ex- reasonably expect that 5% of alcoholics will walk through that door or doors like it into AA, which is to say 95% will never come to AA. Is this what we want? I need your help. I've been fighting this for a long time, and I've gotten hostility from all directions. I was, I was on a radio program in, in Baltimore, and I, I am not anonymous. I haven't been for 20 years. I think it's nonsense. And four people call in to complain. Not one of them showed the slightest concern about the fact that 95% of alcoholics uh, do not make it. But they were all very concerned that I broke my anonymity. You would think they were talking about a nun losing her virginity. Um, I need your help, and I hope your response is not going to be reminiscent of the story about the Lone Ranger when he said, Tonto, Tonto, we're surrounded by hostile Indians, what are we going to do? And Tonto said, what do you mean, what are we going to do? (laughs) We have to do something about this. Um, A study I, I did... You know, I've been, time didn't permit my going into my background, but I came from like so many a dysfunctional family. But I often wonder, is there one quality we seem find in happy people that, or you're not, you're going to find the opposite in unhappy people? And I did a lot of studying, and I came up with a simple solution. Not that it's new, but you can prove it to yourself by writing down the names of five people you know who are happy, well-adjusted, contented, joyful, optimistic, and five who are the opposite. Unhappy, negative, miserable, always complaining. And now, you just describe these people, these ten people, with one word. Are they givers or takers? I guarantee you will find that the happy people are the ones who are involved in others. Now, you and I are very fortunate as role models. We have a great power above and beyond what we have as doctors or dentists or psychologists, whatever. We have the capacity to save many lives. And if doing something for another person can make us happy, what can give us greater happiness than to save a life? And there is one way we can do it. And we don't have to charge a machine gun. We don't have to run into a burning building or jump into a raging, roaring stream. All you have to do is let all the people in your circle of friends know you're a recovery alcoholic and you're inactive in AA. If you want to, you can still be anonymous at the level of, uh, according to AA, according to the level of radio, press, and film. That's your business. But anything beyond that is not anonymity. It is secrecy. 
uh, as I said, we can. Okay, let's see. I saw something happen recently. It just shocked me. It nauseates me when uh, a, a nurse came into a, a and she was telling about when she came into a a, uh, a doctor in the in the hospital. To let her know that he had been in AA for ten years after she got into AA. Why the hell didn't he come to her five or ten years sooner and let him know and get her in? Let me tell you a few of the quotations I have, which have some meaning to me in my book. There is one thing stronger than all the armies in the world, and that is an idea whose time has come, Victor Hugo. The time has come for us to decide what are we going to do. We're going to still sit around pontificating about how spiritual we are, while 95% of our brother and sister alcoholics are out there dying. Uh, progress is impossible without change, and those who cannot change their mind cannot change anything. George Bernard Shaw. And this I like. You try to save a drowning man without prior authorization, and even if he resists you, you do not let him go when he tries to strangle you. Dog Hammarskjöld, who is the Secretary of the United Nations. It is one of the most beautiful compensations in life that no man can sincerely try to help another without helping himself, Ralph Waldo Emerson. And this is uh, where I, what I say when I have my chapter, Anonymity Must Go. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under the heaven, a time to keep silent and a time to speak, Ecclesiastes. To the physicians in AA, every truth passes through three stages. In the first it is ridiculed, in the second it is opposed, and in the third it is seen as self-evident. Schopenhauer. Not all problems that are faced can be solved, but no problem can be solved unless it is faced. James Baldwin. We have never been honest about facing this problem. And a quotation I have at the beginning and the end of the book, the only quotation I have twice, if you save one life, it's as if you saved the world. Um, I like to think of an analogy. I think of what's happening in AA. I compare it to a shipwreck at sea. There's a ship on which there are a thousand passengers and the ship goes down. There are a thousand people out there ready to die. But 50 of them, 5%, just like in AA, are in lifeboats. Now, to save the other 950, all they have to do is turn on their flashlights. But some of them are saying, well, no, I don't think they're ready yet. They haven't admitted they're drowning. They haven't hit bottom. I think that we, if we hold on to what we call anonymity. If we hide our recovery, we are being very selfish. We are being cowards. I have seen a tremendous amount of cowardice and selfishness in AA. I asked a psychologist if he'd be one of my speakers one day, and he got all excited and anxiety. Oh, no, no. I'm a psychologist. I'm a professor at Catholic U. Nobody knows I'm an alcoholic. Two weeks later, I'm downtown standing in front of the National Art Gallery waiting for a ticket to the Egyptian collection, and a young girl is standing there with books. We began talking, and I asked her if she's a student, and she said yes. I asked where she went to school, and she said, Catholic U. I said, what are you studying? She said, psychology. I said, do you know Dr. So-and-so? And she said, yes, he's an alcoholic, isn't he? But nobody knows he's an alcoholic. Another, another doctor, I asked, he came to me at a doctor's meeting one day, looking around like a scared little rabbit. Oh, Leo, I understand you're going to give a talk at such and such a hospital. Now, nobody there knows I'm an alcoholic. Jeez, I was there five minutes and a dozen people came up to me. Do you know Dr. So-and-so? And there's only one reason I'd ask. You know, um, I was watching a celebration about the 4th of July some years ago, and I was getting pretty emotional, and my girlfriend asked me why. I said, I couldn't help but think about our forefathers, the George Washington, the Jeffersons, the Patrick Henry, and think of the courage, the guts they had, taking on the greatest country in the world, England. And they said, we pledge our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. And I said, I compare it to a lot of the selfishness and cowardice I see in AA. How tragic. We are one and a half million weak. I want us to become one and a half million strong. One, another statement I like is, the only thing necessary for evil to triumph is that enough good men do nothing. And this other nonsense that we hear is, AA is a program of attraction, not promotion. Why? Why don't we promote it? 
Nobody's going to be attracted. Eh? We are as sick as our secrets. We say that all the time. We are as sick as our secrets. And I'll tell you one thing. When you uh, let it be known to everyone that you're a recovered alcoholic, it'll be reminiscent of, I think, the epitaph on Martin Luther King's tombstone. Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. I uh, hope there is a few minutes. Uh, if there's any questions you want to ask, I'm willing to try to answer them, or I'm willing to stay around as long as you want me to. And I hope that you see fit to buy my book. I could use it because I put all my money into that book. I had open-heart surgery in January 91. I went blind in my left eye. I had hernia operation, prostate surgery. I'm supposed to have surgery on my carotids, but to be honest about it, I'm a little fearful of doing it because it's on the side of my good eye. And uh, I, uh, I'm a little afraid of that because I was told that I have a fairly good chance of it being affected from the what happened to me then. And uh, I need your help. I'd appreciate it. I have a few books here, but I have envelopes that I can give to you. The book was originally... Seventeen ninety-five plus two dollars for handling. You can get it today for fifteen dollars. I have envelopes. I have them. I'll put them out here. And I'd appreciate it for any of you who want to stay around and ask me questions because I know that what I say is perhaps new, unusual, but everything I say, as far as I'm concerned, is right out of AA. We have a moral obligation, and I feel that we all have a choice. We can continue to be part of the problem or we can become part of the solution. I'd like to end my, by saying something uh, I heard at my second meeting, I think, many years ago. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous may not help us open the gates of heaven and let us in, but most assuredly it will open the gates of hell and let us out. I want to say hello to my friend Joe down there. He took me to... Is that Joe down there? Uh, he took me to my first meeting, and I will say this. When I, he was taking me to my first meeting, I was not without charity. Because when he told me his story, I remember thinking but not saying, thank God this poor son of a bitch is an AA. He really needs it. <laughs> so if there are any questions... Uh, Questions? What that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I no, I think that as far as I'm concerned, if you ask every patient the one question that's cited. Will you tell me all about your first drink? I think there'll be no doubt in your mind that we, just to quote uh, who is the, the writer who said rich people are d- different. Well, alcoholics are different in terms of their rela- the way they react to the beverage alcohol. Most of us react differently right from the beginning. There's something genetic there. In fact, I think I proved it was genetic in 1980, at least to my satisfaction, before the NIH people got around to proving it. Huh. Yes, sir? Yeah. Well, that's, remember, anything that is written, it's not written in stone, carved in stone. Bill wrote his opinions, and Bill died, I think, in 1971. There's nothing in AA that says we shall not think. As far as I am concerned, I don't see anything spiritual about keeping secret a treatment for a fatal illness. To me, spirituality has to do with concern for my fellow man and helping others. And I don't see that we're doing that by hiding in the closet, hiding in church basement. That's my opinion. Any other questions? Feel free. Yes. Well, in my experience, first of all, the thing that destroyed, let me give an example. I have not been anonymous for 20 years. I have never received anything but praises when I say I'm a recovered alcoholic. But if you go around saying you're recovering, you're saying I haven't made it yet. Can you imagine going to an employer and saying, I want a job, could you hire me? I am recovering from a heart attack and expect them to hire you. 
or say I'm recovering from a cancer operation? Of course they won't. But yet, people go around and say I'm recovering from alcoholism and expect to be greeted with open arms. When you say you're recovering, you're saying I haven't made it yet. You're cutting your own throat. It's nonsense. And in my experience, we have failed in, in pushing this thing about recovering. What we have said, what failed to recognize is a tremendous difference between the drinking alcoholic and the recovered alcoholic. There's no one commands more respect and admiration than a recovered alcoholic. I mean, we're hurting ourselves. Yes, well, I think they should. I mean, I think the whole system of getting alcoholics diagnosed and getting a treatment, it, it's horrible. And I think people like ourselves in this room, we are the ones who can do it. If we, the, the members of the medical community, and I use the word medical community to mean anyone who is involved with helping others, if we cannot speak up and say something, I don't know who's going to. I've written letter after letter to Central Headquarters in New York making complaints, registered letters. They've never been acknowledged. I was not allowed to quote the steps in my book unless I promise to remain anonymous. You know. No, I think we have to do a lot of looking at what's going on. We really do. I agree. I agree. I see people, I remember at a doctor's meeting, over the years I've seen doctors, psychologists, social workers, nurses, dentists come in with these terrific anxiety attacks because somebody who knew them when they were drinking now started working at their hospital and they're living in terror. And, but once, I, once they get around to letting it out and letting it be known, the problem goes away. You know, we have to, if, if we're ashamed of our illness, others are going to be ashamed of it too. We have to take a stand. I took a stand many years ago, many years ago. I remember the first person I got to do this, oh, 20 years ago, Janet, a nurse. She had mixed feelings, but she told everybody at the hospital she was an AA. My God, three months later, she had grown so much, she was thanking me and she was telling me how joyful it was for other people to come from the hospital, doctors and nurses, come over to her and say, would you see a patient for me? No, we've got to do it. We're, we're, li- we're developing a lot of paranoia in AA, really. I know one guy who had not had a drink in 25 years, and he really said, oh, you know, the people in southern Maryland, they're rednecks, and if they know you're an alcoholic, blah, blah, blah. I said, are you telling me that if they know you haven't had a drink in 25 years, they'll stop buying cars from you? I, I mean, it, it can get silly. We're seeing demons where they don't exist, believe me. Okay, I'm still willing to stay around, uh, if I, and I have envelopes. <laughs>